Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Good morning from the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio in Stoneville. Tom and I are back in Stoneville. If you've been listening to us for the last several weeks, all of those episodes were recorded at the Row Crop Short Course in Startwell during December. And so we kind of capitalized on that. While we've been running around doing meetings, we had some content that we were able to share with you, so we hope that's been informative. So we're back in Stoneville now, and this is, I guess, semi-up-to-date on our recording time and our release time. Yeah, I was going to say, it's the off chance that Jason and I are actually in the greater metropolitan area of Stoneville on the exact same day. Saw Tom Wednesday for the first time in three weeks. Yep, and we saw each other in Starkville. So yeah, yeah, we weren't even we <laughs> weren't, weren't even, even where we're normally uh, housed. We do have a guest on the phone today, old friend Dr. Jay McCurdy, who's the Mississippi State Extension Turf Specialist. Is that correct, Jay? That's right. I'm, I've been here almost ten years and uh, have enjoyed most of it. I'm an associate professor in plant and soil sciences, uh, your home department, I believe, Jason. That's correct. Like I said, Jay's been around for a number of years, but he also has a little bit different clientele than what Tom and I have and what our podcast has. So we're glad we could get him. I guess y'all bumped into each other at an interview or something the other day. We bumped into each other at an interview, and we sat and had lunch and discussed a couple of things. And Jay, we're going to let you introduce yourself a little bit more thoroughly because you got a, a pretty interesting background but before we start we always like to ask folks maybe a little off the wall question so uh, i've known you for a long time and i know you've done some kind of extreme stuff in your day so races and things like that so what's the most extreme thing you've ever done jay on the physical front i've got a, a background in endurance sports and have done some longer races triathlon particularly but but actually a little known kind of factoid about Mississippi is we have a lot of unpaved gravel roads and there just recently, two weeks ago was a, uh, was a race here in Ackerman, Mississippi on some of the Knoxby national forest wildlife management area, gravel roads. And so it was a 108 mile ride put on by some of the local race producers and local riders. And that was pretty extreme, a pretty, pretty deep, dark place towards the end of that race when I uh, was cracked and, and uh, my head was not totally with it, but there's some, some really pretty places in this state to enjoy on a bicycle. So that's, that's part of it, I guess. So I'm assuming that was a mountain bike. This, well, you could ride a mountain bike on some of this, but this was actually a gravel bike. So it's a, got okay. a little fatter tires, but it's, it's basically a, a beefed up heavier road bike. But Huh. I don't have a background bicycling to know something about that. And I don't know that I would be able to do 108 miles at one crack. That would be difficult. Not on rocks. Yeah. Well, I almost, I almost didn't. So it was a fun chance to explore. Well, that's awesome, dude. So, Jay, I know you got a farming background before you got into the, the yeah. world of, of turf grass management. So why don't you just tell folks kind of who you are, where you're from right quick. Yeah, I, I grew up in northwest Tennessee in a, a little small town called Dyer, Tennessee. Grew up largely row crop farming with some livestock background. And uh, because of what was then the Carter administration's push for soil health and erosion control in that sort of those wind-blown lush soils, highly erodible lush soils in northwest Tennessee, there was a push for uh, the Save Our Soils initiative. And so our little farm had a piece of that farm in that initiative where they built a lot of levees. And so my father and his 
my grandfather, his father, uh, were harvesting Bermuda grass sod with an old walk behind Ryan sod cutter and were moving that pasture Bermuda grass onto these levees for erosion control. And, and that was, you know, the early beginnings of a sod farm. So I grew up doing mixed row crop and livestock, but then sod production became really what we did. We also had some other specialty crops, still had pumpkins, but had peppers early in my life and uh, raised chickens and sheep and pigs and, and livestock. So a bit of a diverse background. Probably the, the most influential thing, you know, that I, aside from the sod production was we had an old uh, a seed cleaner. We grew up in the seed cleaning business. Uh, prior to many of the uh, traits being introduced in the late 90s, that was a big part of our family's operation. And a tornado blew it away in about 2006, right as these, these traded crops were really taken off. So uh, we often have been pretty thankful for uh, for that tornado. Not in many regards. It, it killed some folks. But, uh, uh, you know, took the seed cleaner and, and got that insurance money, and, and uh, we didn't have to worry about those traded seed companies anymore. Yeah, I took that temptation away, huh? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I think it's probably still out in the woods somewhere. The sea cleaning business is pretty interesting. I learned a lot about working in pretty dusty, loud, hard environments growing up. But that was one of the one of the dirtier and dustier and louder for sure. Nothing about that seems fun, man. We're into the latter half of February. I know that's the time when I try to manage some stuff in the grass in my yard. So why don't you give folks I guess the the beginnings of an idea of what we need to be thinking about this time of year for management of turf, whether it's weed management or, or anything else. You could start with a lot of fundamental, uh, you know, basically this is the time of year to try to get soil samples and to get our soil fertility pH and such right and to get a game plan for fertility for our particular turf grass species. There's a whole conversation worth having uh, regarding what species do you have, whether it be Bermuda grass or uh, zoysia grass or St. Augustine grass, centipede grass, or even carpet grass, bahia grass. Those are all common, if not prevalent, in our Mid-South and, and Deep South region. And each one of those requires different fertility. It, they are favored by different soil pHs. And of course, different herbicides, well, they have different herbicide tolerances. So knowing the species is important. You know, you can send me or anybody else a picture and we can try to help guide you through that. But that's kind of one of the basic principles of what we do. But in regards to where we're going throughout the season, we're going to be trying to head off a lot of problems in regards to weeds that we start to really notice in April, May, and June, and on, you know, on into the summer. Those weeds are typically germinating this time of year. So crabgrass, for instance, is one of the earliest to germinate. Typically germinates in around 55 degrees soil temperature. So not that much different from when we're planting corn. So you start to think about what we can do to stop that germination. Well, those young seedling crabgrass plants are there now in some regards. They've started to germinate in sort of isolated environments, warmer uh, south-facing slopes, for instance. But freezes the frost that we're about to experience, they tend to control many of those early seedlings that are germinating. But if we put down a pre-emergence residual herbicide this time of year on through maybe roughly mid-March, we can catch 80, 90% of the, the problems that really are upon us later in the summer. Crabgrass, goosegrass, somewhat Virginia buttonweed, you know, the really common annual plants can be controlled with a, a residual herbicide this time of year. 
We also probably ought to talk about weeds that are present now. We, like in row crops, oftentimes put down a residual pre-emergent herbicide now with, we don't call it a burn down, but we often apply it with something that resembles that sort of analogous space within the the, the cropping world. And that's going to be a post-emergence herbicide where we're post-emergently controlling weeds that are present, broadleaf weeds like chickweed, dead nettle, henbit, and there's a a whole litany of, of, of things that are present currently that we control. A lot of those are broad leaves, so we're talking about the same kind of actives as you guys are, dicamba, 2,4-D, various other auxin-mimicking chemistries, but also ALS-inhibiting herbicides that are, are perhaps less common in the row crop space that can be tank-mixed in combination with those auxins as well as pre-emergence herbicides in order to control what's there now as well as to prevent what's, what's coming. So yeah, um, you, want, you want to ask some specifics, we'll go into them. Yeah, so let's talk about Tom's yard because I know Tom's yard <laughs> has more weeds in it than my yard does. Truth. Uh, and I hadn't even seen Tom's yard, but I know my yard doesn't have any weeds in it, Tom. What you got in your yard in Cleveland? Right now? Yeah. Well, he listed a couple of those. There's some hembit, there's some dead nettle, and there definitely are some additional grassy weeds in that yard right now because it is predominantly a Bermuda grass yard, and I do have problems with a Virginia buttonweed. And then, of course, I run into mm-hmm. some bahia grass. Now, I didn't plant that bahia grass there. Goodness knows where that came from. And you probably got a yep. pretty good carpet of annual bluegrass right now, too. Yeah, we got the annual bluegrass is popping up around the leaves and everything else that I've not done a spectacular job of taking care of. But um, All right, Jay, build that out then. So Tom's got, yeah. let's say, henbit and, and bluegrass now, then going into Virginia buttonweed and, say, Bahia grass or Dallas grass. You know, you've got a, a pretty good trial site, Tom, so I could probably kind of put some trials there. Uh, Bermuda grass is one of our default lawn grasses. I have to say uh, Bermuda grass is probably one of the more weedy of the grasses we have in the southeast, partly because it tends to have an, an open canopy in the fall time of year. It goes dormant. It uh, doesn't have much green tissue. Bermuda grass withstands pretty low mowing height, so a lot of people tend to push its mowing height a little low in the fall. So if we back up a step and we think about what we need to be doing in the fall, this coming fall, but, but of course in this instance, hypothetically last fall, um, we, we want to be raising mowing height, having a denser canopy so that those weeds don't have the ability to, to grow beneath that canopy. We want to be fertilizing appropriately so that we've got a, a dense and competitive turf grass. Bermuda grass needs, you know, on par with around six pounds of, of nitrogen per thousand square feet per year. So we do all those things right in the fall. But we also in the fall can put out a pre-emergence herbicide that controls some of the things that are, are here now. But more on that later. Let's talk about what we do next fall here in a few minutes. If you just want to take an approach of, uh, of curatively controlling what's there and preventing what's to come, you start with, in Bermuda grass, we can use most of our oxygen-mimicking chemistries. We can even use some non-selective herbicides like Roundup or, or glufosinate uh, to control some of the things that are there. But with as warm as it's been over the last week or two, I'm a little hesitant to recommend non-selectives because they can cause quite a bit of injury. 2,4-D at uh, low use rates in combination with a product like metsulfuron, which uh, we know in turf as MSM turf, not MSMA, but MSM turf or as manor. That product in combination with an auxin, either dicamba or 2,4-D, gives us pretty good spectrum of broadleaf weed control, pretty fast action, 
And then we tank mix that in Bermuda grass this time of year with most likely ProDiamond, which is a, a yellow herbicide. Uh, most row crop folks would be familiar with, with Prowl, which is pendimethalin. That's a, another yellow herbicide. But ProDiamond tends to have a little bit better crabgrass control. You can buy ProDiamond as a generic or as a trademark product like Barricade or Resolute at most of our, our farm seed supply stores, co-ops, et cetera. Uh, so that's a that's a three way combination that gives you some knockdown, give you some uh, some preventative action. Buttonweed, dollarweed, those are two separate problems. But buttonweed has really not germinated yet. It's not easy to to preventatively control Virginia buttonweed. So we do rely a lot more on post emergence active herbicides. Again, metsulfuron being one of those. Metsulfuron in combination with di- with dicamba is a really good option to control buttonweed. Typically, we need two or three applications per year, but that's a a fairly good standard. Another option in the kind of April-May period is using an active ingredient like trifloxysulfuron. Now, to us, that's monument and turf and and, uh, ornamentals. You use a product, trifloxysulfuron, in cotton situations called Invoke. It's the same product, same kind of action. It's a a growth regulator and ALS-inhibiting herbicide and controls buttonweed, but also controls sedge uh, that happened to also coincide with that early emerging buttonweed. So that's another good option that gives you a, a broader spectrum of weed control than just buttonweed. For dollarweed, dollarweed, which you're calling pennywort, is a pretty common cool season plant. It, it tends to last as a perennial throughout the summer, but actually fall control of dollarweed and dichondra, for that matter, is really the, the timing that we'd be shooting for. But you can control it this time of year with some of the same options that we've just talked about. So that's a, that's a Bermuda grass plan that's really cut and dry and, and simple, but we you know, we would tweak that depending upon what other weeds are present. You want to talk about Dallas grass? Yeah, I like to talk about Dallas grass. That one's really difficult to control. Yeah, so well, Dallas grass and Bahia grass are both paspalum genus. They're both Paspalum species. So Paspalum uh, dilatatum is Dallas grass, and it is a true knucklehead. I mean, it's a perennial. It is coming back from those roots and, and rhizomes currently. So if you have the option to go out there in Bermuda grass and make very selective, I mean, spot treat the center with Roundup, those types of applications, then, then now's the time to do it. Uh, also, spring and fall applications of some other herbicides that are, are pretty unique to turf are available. One of those is a product called Tribute Total. Uh, it has some actives that are, are not very common in row crop type scenarios, but combining them at the right rate and in combination with ammonium sulfate and a crop oil or a, a methylated seed oil really goes a long way toward selective control. So what I mean by that is we can spray Tribute Total over the top of Bermuda grass and, and have really good safety. We do that typically in the fall time of year or in uh, the spring. It is not an easy weed to control. Same thing with Bahia grass. Tom, we've got a few other options for your Bahia grass. One of them is, is called Celsius. Celsius is uh, it's pretty selective. Metsulfuron applied multiple applications will control it. But Bahia grass is another one that's very difficult to control. I typically rogue the heck out of that when I get a chance. Mm-hmm. Pull as many of them as I can. And there's, I mean, there's not a ton of it. There's just one little area that's pretty bad. That was the way I became familiar with metsulfuron was for Bahia grass when I lived in Louisiana. 
And then had the buttonweed too in that yard and figured out that it worked good on buttonweed as well. And uh, I guess I've been using it at times ever since. You're you're an early ad- adopter. You're uh, leading the pack, Jason. <laughs> I don't know about that. So, I, just, I just like to spray stuff and watch it die. <laughs> I don't want to dismiss the fact that most most farmers and, and uh, well agri- agronomists, consultants, they're going to have a really good sense for the things we're talking about as far as timing and a pretty good sense for the weeds. The the real you know the hurdles for getting into this turf industry are oftentimes understanding what species we have species of weeds but particularly species of grasses because if you start doing the program i just talked about on centipede st augustine grass or carpet grass or bahia grass you you're running a real risk of not having a lawn yeah so i was gonna say you're gonna have some serious issues well and st augustine grass is really specific when it comes to ph if i'm not mistaken if my memory it serves is. me right I me mean, you really have to watch it and it typically likes a little sandier soil um, which is, it, I think, why it does. it does much better in Florida is they have a better uh, sand component down there than what we do. But you find it in some older older yards, some older homes throughout Cleveland in some places. It's a fascinating grass. St. Augustine grass is, is uh, one that moved around with, with early settlements and probably Spanish-French incursion into this sort of delta region uh, during that settlement in the early 1800s, but particularly you know latter half of the 1800s. When that area was being settled, Folks were moving their their homesteads and uh, setting up anew. And just like in our cemeteries, folks would bring with them some plant material. And oftentimes they were bringing the stolens of St. Augustine grass. And you can find St. Augustine grass in older homes all the way up into Little Rock, north of Little Rock. You see it in Memphis. I've seen it as far north as about Henderson, Tennessee, and I'm sure it goes further north than that. And it does really well in low maintenance, low expectation types of lawns. And that's why I, I want to set the stage for just, you know, think about what we talked about with Bermuda grass. Well, if you want Bermuda grass, it's a, a pretty high maintenance thoroughbred type approach, right? You, you've got to attend to it. It does need fertility to drive it. It does need a fair amount of weed control, not much disease, not much insect pressure. But on the other hand, with St. Augustine grass, some of the best, purest St. Augustine grass lawns our lawns that haven't really been touched from a, a, a pest control perspective in decades, 10, 20 years in a lot of instances, does well in sort of uh, left alone. So I, I have to tell folks in this type of uh, environment with this type of stage, you know, be careful what you wish for. If, if you want a high maintenance lawn, St. Augustine probably isn't it. Or you probably need to get another hobby to worry about rather than a St. Augustine lawn. St. Augustine grass is not very cold tolerant, and so we've seen a lot of St. Augustine grass suffering this year because of our... I had problems with disease on my St. Augustine. I had wet areas, was on the lake, and so the part of the yard that was down on the lake bank, it just really, really got disease bad. pH was probably off. In acidic situations, it, it doesn't dominate very well. It does like a little bit more basic soil. But also in, in those kind of seven to seven five soils, if I'm not mistaken, a large patch does quite well, the rhizotonia. Mm-hmm. And it causes these little rings this time of year. You start to see it greens up. You've got weak areas, yellow in turf. You see it in the fall, too. There are some fungicides that do help to mitigate that. But sometimes a grass like St. Augustine just really isn't meant for certain soil conditions, isn't meant for certain conditions where, you know, maintenance conditions, where high expectation, high traffic, uh, is to be expected. 
Yeah, so, I yeah. lost big chunks of it one year. It was a hurricane year, and so we just had extended cloudy, rainy period. And like you described, those big patches showed up, and then I couldn't do anything with them. Uh, you know, by the time they showed up, yep. disease pyramid, Tom. Yeah, disease pyramid. Yep. Fall treatments with uh, with propiconazole or, or some of these DMI fungicides do quite well, but you got to be careful because they can. Some of them can be pretty injurious during warmer conditions to to St. Augustine or any grass species, and then spring applications as well. So again, you're getting into this vicious cycle of pesticide input for a lawn, and that's okay. It can be done. But sometimes the easier solution is to think about what are the environmental pressures causing some of those things. And in a lot of instances, overuse of fall and spring nitrogen is causing rhizoctonia, for instance. And it's not the direct cause, but it is one of the many factors that we often see. So appropriate use of, of fertilizers in these lawns, appropriate timing, using good quality fertilizers that are slower release, relatively speaking, can really pay dividends in regards to reducing our pesticide input for a St. Augustine or a centipede grass lawn. And paying careful attention and removing something like thatch, because all that does is just serve as organic matter for something like rhizoctonia mm-hmm. to hang around. And that's, you know, that's one yeah. of those things that's not really well, easy to take but, care of. You, you can't remove, I mean, you by and large can't remove thatch in St. Augustine grass because it's almost solely stoloniferous and it's, right. its runners are running across the ground and, and it, it thrives in some of that type of, of thatch. But it, where it doesn't do well is in overaccumulated thatch, which is directly caused by too much fertilizer and not having pro- appropriate mowing, clipping, uh, you know, debris, uh, degradation. So it is an interesting world. I think St. Augustine grass is, is probably my preferred grass in most shaded scenarios, but you see it intermixed a lot with zoysia grass in some of the full sun for these reasons, because zoysia grass does well in full sun. It, it handles much of the kind of inputs and environments that people put it in in lawns. And, and also we see centipede grass and, and carpet grass in tandem in composite with a lot of these other grasses. So yeah, it's it's fun to try to manage all of those in one location. It's not necessarily what we see in suburban, you know, America, but most of us living out in the country uh, have a different expectation for what our lawn looks like. Jay, back to our original scenario with the Bermuda grass. So we're gonna, at, hopefully, at some point, relatively soon, make a herbicide application. Hopefully, that'll have yeah. a a post-emergence and residual product included in the mixture so then i guess touch briefly on the fertility as we move into the spring it is an assumption that many people are managing bermuda grass but uh, i i think the conversation needs to also be bermuda grass is just a higher nutrient requiring grass of any of the five or six that we've talked about so bermuda grass we really can start fertilizing it as early as march we probably shouldn't in, in truth because it tends to cause some issues unless we've got just a, a, a poor soil or unless we have an expectation that we're growing grass in. We really probably need to be waiting for that first application of, of nitrogen uh, to be sometime in early April. And then, you know, you can get on a schedule of applying roughly monthly in Bermuda grass with a, about a pound of nitrogen per thousand square feet per growing month. We only have about six or seven growing months for Bermuda grass when that's applicable. So you wind up totaling about six pounds of N per thousand square feet per year for a, a decent, healthy stand of Bermuda grass in uh, an average soil. 
but that's not every situation. Contrast that with St. Augustine and centipede and carpet grass to some extent, but, but those two grasses, carpet grass, excuse me, centipede grass and St. Augustine, they, they maybe have half the nitrogen requirement of Bermuda grass. So you can split those applications in half, or you can do half the number of applications and really roughly meet the needs of, of both of those grasses very well. Centipede grass in some instances doesn't need any fertility at all. And in other instances on, on uh, unfavorable soils or in poor soils, we need to be thinking about fertilizing it, you know, quite a bit more. So there's plenty of resources online. We've got a, a publication, which is Establish and Manage Your Home Lawn, which is available on the Extension website uh, that goes into a lot more detail about that. But there's nothing better than getting a soil report sent to our soils lab or, or whoever's soils lab and getting their recommendation for a X species home lawn. That's going to give you a, a good idea about the calendar of, of application as well as the application amount. How do you recommend soil sampling, turf grass, you know, time of year, number of samples per area? Okay, that's a really good question. And with your listener base, it seems probably less complicated than it really should be. But we don't want to overcomplicate this for the average homeowner. So the average homeowner out there, I'm going to say, look, there's no better time than now or any time to do your soil samples. But in truth, we all know that agronomically speaking, the available nutrients within the soil, as well as the conditions that it's under, kind of change throughout the season. So ideally, we'd, be, we'd want to be sampling those soils when they're not saturated, typically in the fall or the winter time of year. We can do it in the spring, but we just, we just don't want to be shipping saturated soils because there's some uh, reactions that can occur within those soils that can sort of alter the nutrient availability. As far as sample numbers per area, you know, most folks divide up their home lawn into the front yard and the backyard, but any of us who understand sort of the local topography or the, the differences between certain areas should probably be sampling those areas separately. So I have some areas in my yard that I know are different pH. I have some areas that I know are down a slope or uphill or on a toe slope. So I, I, I tend to want to know those separately. And you don't need more than five or 10 samples from an area to get a pretty good picture. You do want to, you know, to accurately represent the variation within those areas, but that doesn't require a lot of sampling. We've sampled to a depth in turf of only roughly three inches. We don't go much deeper than that because the roots of most of our warm season grasses really aren't getting down much below that. And then also in a lot of our suburban areas where we're dealing with lawns that have been, that were once something else and had been cleared had been graded, uh, the soil depth can shift uh, markedly because they often come back and try to smear topsoil over whatever that base layer was. So we, we don't want to be sampling too deep down into the base soil. We just want to be sampling where the, the grass roots are. So then to kind of close up, you, you would suggest just basically a regular soil sample probe for that type of sample situation. Oh, yeah. Not, not fancy. I mean, I, I, I even use a shovel oftentimes in my yard because my dang soil probe gets clogged with the clay soil that we've got over here on some of our property. But yeah, it, it, anytime's a good time to do it. You don't have to do it every year, uh, but you do want to do it anytime you're making major alterations to soil pH. In fact, when I look at a soil report, the first thing I'm looking at is soil pH. Soil pH dictates a lot of the species and how those species do or how well they do. 
And um, if I've got a Bermuda grass lawn that's growing in a 7.5 pH, a lot of the issues that, that are associated with that lawn are going to be pH related because the ideal soil pH range for Bermuda grass is somewhere down around 6 to 6.5. So I also look at organic matter content in a lot of situations where we have really thatchy soils. We can have some periodic drought that uh, causes hydrophobic dry spots. And so those are some things that we try to address separately. And then I look at nitrogen. And I know that the base estimate for certain grasses are going to be recommended, you know, in the lower part of that soil report. Keep in mind that almost none of our soil reports are estimating soil nitrogen because it's, it's fleeting within the soil. You know, it changes in what elemental form or, or species that exists within the soil. So I look at phosphorus, I look at potassium, I may look at some of the miners, and we go from there putting together a, a program. Perfect. I think that's outstanding information for the base homeowner that would listen to this or even somebody who's a little bit more advanced than that, because I think homeowner turf yeah. is, is really important. So we definitely appreciate the time with you this morning, Jay. Well, we're all homeowners. And, and I think that, well, not all of us are, and that's, uh, you know, that's a consequence of socioeconomics, but we all in some way are impacted by turf grass. And so it's an important conversation to have, and, and I appreciate the opportunity. Jay, that's awesome, man. I appreciate it. And I appreciate your help. You're always quick to answer my questions when when they come up, and, and maybe my questions tend to be a little bit more complicated. <laughs> you know, you asked some really good questions. I, I think that um, I enjoy dealing with anyone who's curious. I'm not MSU's version of Google, so I'm not here to answer every question because I can't, but I certainly will try to answer any question that uh, – someone who's curious or, or is a, a person that makes her living doing this for sure. Send me an email and uh, always send some pictures with the scenario and I'll do my best to answer questions as they come. Thanks buddy. All right. We'll do it again sometime. See you guys. The Mississippi crop situation podcast is a production of Mississippi state university extension. 